I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. My guest today is Kenyatta Berry. She is a contributor to the groundbreaking 1619 project, which was published by the New York Times. She is the 2019 Honorary Chair for Preservation Week and was recently named a newsmaker in the American Libraries Magazine, a publication of the American Library Association. She's an author, an attorney, lecturer, professional genealogist, and television personality who ignites the genealogy world with a bigger than life personality and illustrious career spanning over 20 years of data collection, in-depth genealogical research, and historical content in the discipline of genealogy. Welcome to The Caring Economy, Kenyatta. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Now, full disclosure to my viewers and listeners, rather, I don't, I'm not a genealogy guy. I'm fascinated to have you on today to learn more and share some with my, my listeners. We're all in this era where we see television ads all the time for get your DNA done and then a fantastic PBS show, as you, as you well know. Before we even jump into genealogy, just tell us a little bit about Kenyatta Berry and where you grew up, how you got where you got. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. I love Detroit, all things Detroit, including the Detroit Lions, which is painful at times. Um, but I started in Detroit and went, graduated from Michigan State University with a degree in business. And then I decided to go to law school. For some reason, I never really talked about law, but it fascinated me. Went to Thomas Cooley Law School. Michigan State did not have a law school at the time when I was applying. I found my love or discovered my love and passion for genealogy in law school. So while I was studying at the Library of Michigan, my first year doing torts and contracts law, I needed a break. So one of the things for me is that I was dating someone whose family were very prominent in Augusta, Georgia, Philadelphia, and North Carolina. I started to look at his family because I thought with my family, oh, they're just farmers from Virginia or they're farmers from upstate New York. They're not that interesting. So I started to look at his family and found a ton of information and I became hooked on genealogy. So when doing that, as I graduated from law school, I did internet law. So I'm a techie. Uh, so I did internet law for a number of years and all while working in technology, I continued to research genealogy and finally decided in 2017 to actually leave my uh, well-paying software job to focus on genealogy full-time. And so that's how I got to where I am. That's awesome. What happened to the romance? Oh, well, the best thing that came from that was genealogy because that was... <laughs> <laughs> what a great pivot. And I, like you, I, I'm not raised most... Well, I spent a lot of time in suburban Detroit. My parents lived there and it was a great place to be from and to go back to. And we'll talk more later maybe about how it's... This time around, I think the Renaissance Center and all that is really exciting and different. Um, so how did you get into the tech part then? You just specialized in law school? In tech. Yeah, in law school, I was pretty much, a, I've been a nerd most of my life, right? I guess, so that was just kind of it. And uh, I was always fascinated with computers. I remember trying to install a hard drive. I never read any instructions, which of course is bad. I was trying to start a hard, a hard drive into my uh, PC and it was smoking. I remember that. <laughs> that was 
thing. So <laughs> that was me. And so I really had this fascination. So in law school, I focused on internet law. My first job out of law school, I worked for an internet service provider. So I'm dating myself. I graduated from law school in 1998. So back when we had ISPs, you know, my job then was really focused on identity theft, but it wasn't called that at the time. And then hacking and kind of denial service. So all of these very tech things that happen to, to websites. And I like to joke that it was back when Amazon sold only books is when I was practicing <laughs> internet law. We're aging ourselves. <laughs> I know, yeah, exactly. And so I just kind of really had this fascination with technology from a young age mm-hmm. and as well throughout um, high school and then carried that into my law career. When you were coming up with that interest, did you have mentors or teachers who said, you run with this, you've got a talent, or did you have to kind of self-teach yourself? I had to teach myself. Um, I remember in law school, again, nerd alert, I started like the Computer Law Association or something, and I was like the only member for a while, <laughs> and I recruited like a couple other people, and then I had like a whole newsletter I did. Yeah, I was. it was just me kind of, you know, being the lone person, uh, just pursuing my interests, and since I grew up an only child, that's fine for me, right? I didn't have built-in playmates. So I was very used to actually just kind of doing my own thing by myself and seeing if it works or not. And then you discover this passion for genealogy and connect the dots for me, if you would, between that and becoming a contributor for the 1619 project that the New York Times did. Because that's, I mean, that's all about genealogy and history and groundbreaking, prize-winning. Did they find you? Did you find them? What happened? Actually, it's it's kind of interesting. I got involved with the 1619 Project because the creator of the project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, had actually, I met her on Twitter, of all places, prior to the 1619 Project. And she actually has a very illustrious career in journalism, and she had been working on a book. Mm-hmm. And so through my work I'd done on Genealogy Roadshow and other places, I was recommended to her as a genealogist to help do research for her book. Yeah. So I'd worked with Nicole and I was, you know, kind of just doing my book tour. And then she approached me and said, I'm working on this project for the New York Times. And I want you to do the genealogy of four Howard University law students who are graduating. And I said, okay. And I didn't know, obviously, at the time <laughs> what it would be. I often say that my work was the least controversial piece because it's towards the end and no one really gets to it. Maybe they do, but they don't really talk about it. And I'm okay with that because what I did is do the research for these four university, Howard University law students, uh, soon to be graduates, who took their ancestry back to uh, slavery. So I was able to find their enslaved ancestors and we kind of drew this thread from them, you know, being at the top of their class, graduating from law school, entering, you know, taking the bar, entering the workforce and how their ancestors had been enslaved. So that was really my contribution to that um, and to that project. So while you have a lot of essays that kind of go through various aspects of capitalism, healthcare, you know, talk about Wall Street and different things like that, when you get to the piece on genealogy, it's, you know, really focused on inspiring folks to be interested in their family history and in uplifting these graduates as an example of their accomplishments based on their ancestry. Amazing. I I think that it's really important now because I'd like to think that the national dialogue is coming where we can talk about restitution, reconciliation, these issues. And we need to have scientific or fact-based ways of looking at who's who and where they've come from, if we're ever going to try and do that reconciliation and whatever comes with that. Would you say that's a fair statement? Yeah, I think it is a fair statement. I would say that, you know, I moved to California to start a company, you know, focused on enslaved genealogy 
almost 14, 15 years ago, right? Started out in Northern California, now in Southern California. And at that time, no one wanted to talk about slavery. No one wanted to talk about the enslaved. And I have seen the shift and change Mm -hmm. in people actually wanting to talk about that and discuss it and understand what it means Mm -hmm. in the fabric of American history. And and, and for African-Americans, Black folks in America, what it means for us to understand our family history, because all we're trying to do is find our people. That's pretty Mm -hmm. much it, like everyone else. You and I have had some exchanges offline with like my friend Cheryl uh, Wills at New York One, who's doing that very kind of work on her family. And even at my work at the British Consulate, that we're working on a f- wonderful film project and teacher institute now around slavery in the revolutionary period. So mm-hmm. yes, but also there's a transatlantic aspect to it as well. It's very exciting. And so tell us about the television piece and, and what you did with PBS. So Genealogy Roadshow, I was a host on that for uh, a number of years, about three, three and a half years or so, uh, three seasons. I kind of just, I wouldn't say like everything in my life because there actually is a threat to, there's a method to the madness of what I do. Please right? tell my Yeah, my career trajectory has been kind of different, but I was living here in Santa Monica. They were looking to hire genealogists in the LA area for this new show. And with Genealogy Roadshow, because at the time I was the president of the Association of Professional Genealogists, which is a nonprofit of worldwide organization of genealogists, professional genealogists, they wanted to meet with me. So I met with two folks. And what was interesting is I didn't know they were from casting. So we go, I go to the Valley. I, you know, have my best East coast black dress on and I'm here doing my thing for my, you know, my members. And they asked me to audition for the show. And I said, no, I said, I work in tech. I don't do TV. You know, I was like, I don't do that stuff. Well, because I had watched all these reality TV shows. I was like, I don't know what they're doing. I work in tech. I'm not You're doing not a Kardashian. This. Got it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, I'm not doing all that. But they really, the two folks convinced me and they said, just go home and do a Skype. And I was like, I don't even know what to do, what to say. I just did the Skype and I didn't think anything of it. I was working full-time selling software. A couple of months later, they were like, PBS loves you. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this is the thing. And then we filmed on the weekends. So I worked the entire time I was filming Genealogy Roadstar, worked full time. We filmed on the weekends and I didn't tell anyone that I worked with or that I was working with at the time at the software company that I was going to be on television until a month before <laughs> it was supposed to premiere. <laughs> so, and then they start seeing you. Wow. Yeah. Well, I was like, they're going to see me on TV. I should probably say something. So I told them, and then it was kind of in a, they found out uh, at a, a sale, we had a sales meeting or something like a sales uh, kickoff or something. Uh-huh. And it was my team. And we had to write two things about ourselves. They had to guess who it was. And so one of them I put up is that I was going to be on TV in September. And they're looking around the room like, who is this? And then the VP had to say, Kenyatta. They were like, what? And I was like, yeah. So I had to explain kind of the whole story. So that's kind of the transition from, you know, being president of APG, then auditioning, sort of, you know, being coerced to audition for the show, actually filming the show, and then being sharing with folks that now I'm on TV. And it was something that I just love doing. Every year I wanted to get better. I enjoyed interacting with everyone. I enjoyed revealing their family history. And it just became something I just was very, very passionate about. Kenyana, can you describe for our listeners who haven't seen it, the show, the format and how it works? Oh, sure. So Genealogy Roadshow is kind of based loosely, I would say based on Antiques Roadshow, but it's it's similar in a way in which we traveled to various locations. And it was for everyday people. So if anyone um, listening is familiar with Finding Your Roots um, with Henry Louis Gates on PBS, he tends to focus on very prominent individuals. We did is focus on the everyday person. So they would uh, submit a couple of questions 
I want to know, you know, about someone on my great grandmother was on an orphan train, or I heard this story about a horse thief, or there were three Irish brothers, or, you know, my ancestor left South Carolina and moved east. Why? So they would submit these questions. And there were three of us on the show, two in season one and three hosts in seasons two and three. And we would present this information and we would say, here's what we found out about your third or fourth great grandmother, your second great grandparent. And we would answer the questions the best that we could. What people liked about the show is that because it was everyday people. So they could relate. They could think, oh, I'm interested in genealogy. I can find out my family history. I, you know, I have a family story that I want to explore more and I don't know where to go. So we really tried to help people really connect to their past and answer any burning questions they had. Do you have a couple of favorite aha moments or stories where you just were really so proud of what you're doing or so touched by the reaction? Gail Lukasik is one of my first. And Gail's story is that she'd been doing research herself, right? So a lot of people that came on the show, especially the ones we sat down at the table with and had a conversation, they'd already been doing research. They had hit a brick wall or they kind of wanted to, you know, they didn't know where to go. Gail Mm -hmm. had been doing research on her mother's ancestry for a number of years, more than 10 years. During that time period, her mother grown up in New Orleans, but had migrated to Ohio. Gail did the research and found out that her mother, uh, who was very fair skinned and was presumably a white woman or living as a white woman, was actually passing for Black. And Gail's mom, as she did went through this journey, she found census records, a birth certificate that identified her mother as Black or Negro. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing with Gail approaching coming on Genealogy Roadshow is that she had confronted her mother and said to her mom, you know, I found this information and her mother denied it. Wow. And Gail presented the evidence yeah. to her mom and her mother said, you know, how will I hold my head up to my friends? Wow. You can't tell anyone until I die. Wow. And so Gail kept the secret for a long time. Her mother passed on, transitioned, and then she came on the show. And from there, I was able to help her connect to her mom's side of the family in New Orleans that she never knew. And from that show, from that that episode, Gail was able to connect with her her uncle, her aunt, and her cousins because her mom's parents had got divorced when her mother was very young, which she knew about. That her uh, grandfather remarried and he had, I believe it was four additional children that Gail never knew. And one of the cousins... Her friend of hers was watching the episode of Genealogy Roadshow. And because the one son was a junior, she said, you're related to this woman. And Gail was able to connect and reunite with the entire branch of her family. She wouldn't have known if she Amazing. hadn't come on the show. As you're speaking, I'm just reminded of so many times in, in culture where we see like um, Imitation of Life or the movie mm-hmm. Passing that came out last year, heart-wrenching drama. So I can imagine that you had to treat that subject matter very delicately and respectfully. I did. And I was very nervous. I was very nervous because it, within the African-American culture, you don't, if you, even if you know someone is passing, you do not out them. You don't say anything. It could be your relative. It could be someone you just look at and you're like, mm, you know, but you don't say anything. And I was very concerned about that. And then sort of what the reaction will be for her, because now you're coming on national television and you've lived your life as a white woman. Your mother lived her life as a white woman. And now you're going on television, telling your mom's story that she, and you held this secret for so long, which is really brave of her. Gail also wrote, wrote a book called White Like Her about this journey. And I was, that's one of my favorite stories because 
I could see her change in front of me. And I knew that I was having a big impact on her life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you dealt with it responsibly and and clinically, for lack of a better word. Facts are what they are. You just helped assemble them. Um, One of the things about my time on Genealogy Roadshow is I love PBS. They didn't want to kind of typecast me to do all the stories that are related to enslaved or anything like that. But when it came to Black history, African-American history, I did get the hard stories. Okay. (laughs) They're the only stories that I could tell. This is one of the hard stories was related or related to the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Yes, testing, yeah. There was a, a young woman, I believe it was her second, or actually Melissa McNeil, I believe is her name. It was her second great-grandfather. He always walked with a cane or like a cane on his back between his arms. And then he always wore a hat. There's certain things about him she remembered. And when she came on the show... You know, we were able to get his file from the CDC because he was part of the Tuskegee syphilis study. So he had syphilis. And for folks that don't understand, this is basically a study that was done. It lasted for, I think, 40 years. And it was only it wasn't supposed to last that long. I believe it ended like in 1972 or something around that time. And the the whole premise of the study was to ex- to really examine, and explore the impact of syphilis on the bodies of black men. And even when these black men were, you know, could be had an opportunity to, you know, be cured or whatever of syphilis, take care of it, they weren't given that opportunity. They were continuing to study these these impacts in their body and what it did to them. And so her um, ancestor was part of that study, and we were able to get the file from the CDC. I was explaining to her sort of what happened because I believe the big question was where was he buried, right? Um, we weren't able to locate that. What really made this story impactful? One, because you're sitting across from someone whose ancestor was in a study you can't even believe you just read about it. Maybe you didn't even know about it, right? You just found mm-hmm. out about it. And this is what happens to our ancestor. And you're trying to understand how could the government do this to their own folks right. um, and then not tell them that and told them they were being tested for bad blood, but not necessarily they were not giving them the treatment that they needed they could use. And she was very strong. But the thing that really got me is at some point I looked at her and I looked up and I just felt in my head this whole weight of me telling these stories. And I just started to cry. And that's why I was huge because I had never cried on camera. I was always the person that not made other people cry, but they felt comfortable crying in front of me. Once I started crying, she started crying. Mm-hmm. Then everybody started crying because it was as if, as a, as a black woman to another black woman telling her the story about her ancestor and, and, and it made it real. It yep. wasn't just a file, yep. a CDC that had a person's name on it. This was his blood sitting in front of me and I'm sharing this story with her. So that, and I shared, I, I, that story, while it's, you know, sad and tragic, it's important because people need to know about these things, but it's also the reason why I enjoy doing what I did on genealogy roads. So what I continue to do is because these stories need to be told. Absolutely. And, you know, to bring to life a story of a government failing its people and making it real and accessible to those who had no real idea about it not just the people directly affected by it is profound. Ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, I'm really thrilled to have as our guest, Kenyatta Berry, who is a professional genealogist, an author, a TV personality, attorney. Kenyatta, tell us about genealogy in a way for those who aren't initiated. The stories you've just shared are profound, right? So I think that gives listeners a sense of why it matters. But um, what about naysayers? or people who think it's not for them. For example, I've always been cautious about the DNA aspect of it because I don't want my DNA out in some internet 
database that could be misused. But any words of caution or advice for how to look at one's genealogy? Yeah, so there's two things. What genealogy really is, is it's more, I like to think of it as it's more than just DNA. DNA is part of a tool in the toolkit. Traditionally, gene, our genealogy was focused on or has been focused on documentation, mm -hmm. right? So what I mentioned, the CDC file or Gail having the birth certificate for her mom or looking at census records, like just recently, April 1st of this year, the 1950 census was released right, by the, by the Census Bureau and National Archives. So those records, vital records, census, census records, you know, marriage, cemetery records, newspapers, all of those things help us kind of tell the stories of our family members and study kind of our family history, our genealogy, our ancestry. And that's essentially what we do, right? We really, you know, we sit around looking for dead people because we want to make sure their voices are being heard <laughs> and their stories are being told. And most recently, you know, we've seen in the past five plus years or whatever, more than that, but we've seen the rise of DNA and everyone, you know, with ancestry advertising and 23andMe and a number of their family tree DNA. And there's a number of other DNA companies that are out there. And DNA was just typically used for us to kind of figure out, right? For me, you know, as, as a Black woman, it was like, I want to know my connection, try to figure out my connection to Africa, right? Mm -hmm. It's not going to be that easy for me, but let me take this test and see what happens and get a pretty chart back. And that's what we were doing. And then we were also doing it to have cousin matches and find additional family members and help DNA helps kind of break down these brick walls. Mm -hmm. So for your listeners mm -hmm. who are adopted, DNA is, the, is something that we highly recommend mm -hmm. now. So the point about privacy and being cautious and being cautious about DNA, you have the right to feel that way. And I think it's okay to feel that way, right? Mm -hmm. When you do provide your DNA to a, to a company, right? Mm -hmm. That maybe it goes to a third party lab or they process it or whatever it is, you know, being held by someone else. Right. And mm -hmm. part of what I suggest while it's boring is the re is to read the terms and conditions of what's going to happen to your DNA before you take a DNA test. That's right. the lawyer in you. Yep. Yes, yes. <laughs> because you don't know where it's going to go, what's going to happen. Is, and, yeah. yeah. And a lot of it is as well. What I think what sparked sort of the caution, because us as genealogists, you know, I had a bunch of people in my family tested. I was giving everybody a DNA kit, right? Because I just wanted to, it was fun and exciting. But when you start seeing these cold cases being solved, which is great. Yeah, really great. But, really. When you start with something like, you know, I think it was a Golden State killer and that kind of that kind of case, how it was solved using a, a website where genealogists kind of uploaded their raw DNA data. So what that means for your listeners is when you take a DNA test at Ancestry or you take a DNA test at 23andMe, mm -hmm. you're being compared to the individuals in those those databases. Ancestry database only, 23andMe database only. Makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Now... There was a website at the time, um, I think it's called Genesis Now, but it used to be called GEDmatch, where I, if I were administering your test or I were related to you as your cousin and I wanted to find more relatives, I could take your DNA from 23andMe, my DNA from Ancestry, upload them into this third-party tool, and then I could do cousin matches across multiple DNA databases. Wow. Fantastic, right? We love it as genealogists. However, law enforcement gets wind of it uploads the data from, you know, the folks they're looking for for these cold cases. And then from there, understanding how the, the folks match, right? So when you have a certain match of first cousin, second cousin, you can kind of figure out the relationship to the most recent common ancestor, right? Who you share, you know, mm -hmm. the first cousins, you share grandparents, stuff like that. So you can figure those things out. 
then from there you create a family tree. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. what happens is that family, that DNA leads to creation of family tree leads to a process of elimination of who you, who this DNA probably, you know, matches mm-hmm. as the possible suspect in this cold case. And so that's been going on for years. And I'm not obviously an expert in this at all. I'm just kind of going from what I'm reading, mm-hmm. um, solving the cold cases, but that happened. So the exposure to your DNA or, or law enforcement having access to your DNA has really forced a lot of people to think about, do I want to take a DNA test? Do I want to do an opt-in or opt-out mm-hmm. of that database? And so that's why I say read the terms and conditions and understand what access they have, because mm-hmm. DNA can be very useful in helping you break down a brick wall, not, not only for folks that are adopted, but for African-Americans with enslaved ancestry mm-hmm. um, yeah. and for people who, you know, they they just don't know. They don't have any additional information. I would also think for medical reasons, right? If you need to have someone who can donate an organ or blood or what have you, this is one surefire way to test for it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think if you want to, well, let me, let me say this for medical reasons. It is when you think about DNA, you know, the most common test you're going to get with DNA is autosomal. So autosomal DNA is going to be 50% from your mom, 50% from your dad. Right. You definitely want to look for medical stuff because you kind of want to understand, let's say if you have a branch of the family you don't know about, but you match with a cousin or someone who can give you additional information, you start mm-hmm. getting death certificates, other information, um, and you can build a medical kind of history or profile. Mm-hmm. But the, the other thing I would caution, not even just for folks that are concerned about your DNA being out there on the Internet, more likely than not, there is going to be some type of person that shows up that you didn't expect. So you might find a half sibling. You might find out your father isn't your father. This happens more often than people realize. So I always caution anyone when you're doing genealogy research in general, right? Like when Gail was doing the research with her mom, she wasn't using DNA. She was using good old fashioned microfilm and records, right? And especially, you know, you just never know what you're going to find both in the traditional route of of genealogy without DNA and documentation. And then especially with DNA, because you may get these matches. I even have it in my family, you know, where you get a match and you're like, I don't even know where this person came from. And they're very close match. Mm-hmm. And now you have to do some digging and, and figuring that out. Strikes me that genealogy has been good for improving the American experience, making us more aware of who's who and what's what. But is that too grand or philosophical a statement? I think it has been good for improving the American experience. And that is that it has exposed now there's been backlash to it, but it has exposed, it has exposed, you know, kind of the truth that we try to brush under the rug, but expose mm-hmm. the fact that we have to acknowledge that there were folks that whose ancestors like mine were sold down the river and families were broken up during slavery. And we have a hard time trying to, you know, repair that and, and, and get that and find those family members. But it also can help you can help us kind of understand some of the good things about our family history. And I feel like we can share in those moments of pride because getting back to when I started, right. And I talked about, you know, oh, my family, are just farmers from upstate New York. And I wanted to research this other family because they seemed more important. Right. But my family contributed a lot to their, to the area that they were in in Virginia and the area they were in uh, farmers in Virginia, as well as upstate New York. Right. And they were part of that economy, part of that culture. And so I think with genealogy, it has, you know, kind of helped us understand the uh, the, the American experience. Also, I think doing genealogy, or I know in doing genealogy, it increases your interest in history. So if anything else, it allows us to study history 
to examine American history and to try not to repeat it, but we haven't been good at that, but we try not to. As a student of history, I'm glad to hear that. Do you have businesses or governments that retain your services to help them on projects? I do. So I actually have, I work with a lot of universities. So there are a lot of universities um, that are you know, kind of reconciling the role of role of slavery and the enslaved on their campuses, mm-hmm. right, in the South. So there's, mm-hmm. and also internationally, okay. there's a group called University Studying Slavery, which is based out of University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. with that group, I've been involved with them, working with the University of Mississippi. I work a lot with journalists. Mm-hmm. Any type of corporate work that I do, primarily, that's going to be a lot of speaking. And, and Kenyatta, if people want to be in touch with you, what's the best way to find you? So the best way to find me is my website, which is kenyataberry.com. And you can submit contact information there. I also have a podcast called Conversations with Kenyatta Mm -hmm. that's available on all platforms. Of course, on Twitter at KenyattaDB and Instagram at Kenyatta.Berry. And then one last question for you. I want you to have the last word. You've had this tremendous career trajectory that has made sense in the rearview mirror, as I often describe careers, words of wisdom, advice, anything you want to suggest to listeners about purpose-driven careers. The biggest thing is if you don't know kind of what your, I wouldn't say your purpose is, but kind of your passion, think about the thing that you would do for free. What is the one thing that you would do for free? And, and, and it kind of soothes your soul. That's, that's one, the, the first piece of advice. The second thing is for my work, I didn't choose the work. The work chose me. But the fact that I have a law degree and I spend most of my time researching enslaved individuals and their records are in courthouses means obviously this path is where I need to be. The younger people that are thinking about things, trust your gut. You know, when I left my software job and I said, I'm going to do genealogy full time, you know, I I jumped off a cliff. Now, did I have a parachute? Perhaps. Did I think and prepare beforehand? Absolutely. You know, I live across the street from the beach in Santa Monica, so I had to prepare. But I feel like if you trust your gut, you find your passion and then understand that sometimes the work will lead you where you need to be. There will be people who don't understand it. There will be people who don't, who are brave as you, who don't have the courage, who can't do it. And that's fine. It's not for everyone right? It's not for everyone to be an entrepreneur or to go off and do certain things, but just know and trust in yourself that you can do it because I made a bet and on myself and confident enough in myself to say that I'm going to go out here and see if this works. And so far, so good. And I'll continue to move forward. Awesome. Great words of wisdom, Kenyatta Berry. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Caring Economy. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.